And welcome to worship this morning. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. We're delighted that you're here. We don't think it's an accident. And so we're going to continue as a church doing what the church has done for a couple thousand years. We're going to gather together around God's Word, and we're going to declare the excellencies of our God. So if you've got a Bible, I want to dive right in. I'm going to invite you to turn to the Psalms. We're going to walk through Psalm 1 this morning, and that's because really for the most of the summer months, uh, we're going to, for the most part, be in the Psalms. And I'll explain why here in just a moment, but I'm going to read Psalm 1, and then we'll try to set it up, explain and unpack it a little bit, and see how we can apply it. So Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. You might have a, a subtitle or a subheading over your text. It's not actually uh, inspired. That's been added by an editor, but they're usually pretty good. They're usually very helpful. This one says, the way of the righteous and the wicked, and that's correct. It is about the way. So Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. I wonder if you've ever thought about what we do and why we do what we do in church. We come together and wherever church you have experienced, maybe you've grown up in this church, maybe you've been to a hundred different churches, and this is just one more lily pad before you get mad and go to seven other churches. I don't know. But the chances are, you've probably been to a number of churches, have a number of different experiences, but more than likely, there are probably some similar elements that occur in a church service. One of those is singing, where we corporately lift our voices and we agree with one another of Declaring the excellencies of our God, who He is, what He's done, what He's like, who He has declared that we are. We do that together, and it puts us on the same playing field, you might say. It gives us a great common denominator. We do some of the ordinances like believer's baptism, or like we do here, we do a little bit of a liturgical recitation of confession that unites us all. We are all sinners in need of grace. We hear the assurance of the gospel. We do take communion together to feast on the finished work of Jesus. And then we do a sermon. Why is that? Well, it's simply not just because I have nothing else to do and I'm not very creative, although that's true. No, it's because it is a critical element of the people of God coming together and gathering around God's Word. But let me, let me be very specific. What is the point of the sermon? Why do we have them? The answer is change. God does not change. God cannot change. That would actually be an impossibility. But we are always and ever in need of being changed. There is something that has gone wrong in us, around us, and while we live in this life, there is always something that can be increasingly transformed. And so we come together after having worshiped and confessed and declared that there is a God and He is good and He loves me and He is for me. 
then we expose ourselves to the text and we expose the text to ourselves so that we will be changed. Now, I don't mean to make a big deal about this, but it's only the most important thing I have preached in years. How's that? Because let me just say pastorally, I have spent a lot of time with people in this congregation and outside of this congregation, and there does seem to be a lot of rising anxiety, a, a lot of experience in the world that is causing static and fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I hear the question pretty frequently as though I actually have any answers Hey, what do you think is going on? What is happening? What is going on in the world? Everything sure seems like it's gone crazy. Have you noticed? I was watching this thing, and I was reading this thing, and I heard this thing, and everything's gone crazy. And why is everything so crazy? Well, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And so, I want to remind you, we have sermons so that you and I will change. Not just us, but so we will have an impact and an influence among those with whom we live. And so if you were to ask me, what is the most fundamental need in the world today? What does the world need today more than anything else? You might be quick to Jesus juke me and say, well, Jesus, ah, stop. He's already done the work. He came. He lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. He was flawless. He was fabulous. Everything he thought, every feeling he felt, every word that he spoke, every deed that he did was perfectly in holiness and righteousness. And he died sinlessly in perfect holiness. And he attributed that full finished scorecard of life to me. And as a proof of God's acceptance, he raised him from the dead. And he was seen by hundreds. And he ascended on high and he will return again. The work of Jesus, he's done it. It is finished. And so 2,000 years later, what does this world need more than anything else? What's wrong with the world? Why are we experiencing all sorts of political and partisan polarizations? Why are we experiencing so much gender dysphoria, all sorts of animosities and aggressions? Can I just tell you very simply, I'm just going to solve it. You don't ever have to come back to church now. Not true. The problem is that 8 billion people are not thinking God's thoughts after him. Period. Eight billion people on the planet, and very few of them, if at all, are very rarely thinking God's thoughts after him. But that is precisely and particularly God's plan for the planet and the people thereon. That's why we come. We experience the sermon so that we would change. And so my expectation, my hope for everything that we do in this place this morning is that God would be glorified and that we would be changed ever increasingly to think God's thoughts after him. And so for thousands of years, it has been the Psalms that have been influential and instrumental in making the people of God grow into that kind of person. So we're going to be in the Psalms off and on for a lot of the weeks of this summer. Psalms is the hymn book of the temple. It is the inspired worship guide. It's the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The nation of Israel has a hymn book that God himself writes for them to sing together nationally that they will declare corporately 
who God is, what God has done, and who he has declared them to be because he made them something from nothing. And he knows that they will have hard experiences and beat down seasons of life, and yet he's given them 150 psalms to declare his excellencies. And so we might summarize, what are the psalms? I want you to have this word association trigger that goes off. When you hear the word psalm, I want you to think, thinking and feeling with God. Thinking and feeling with God. That's sort of the subtitle of all of the psalms. Psalms lead us to intellectual stimulation. They, they drive our thinking. They make us think through some things. Paul says in Romans that our thinking matters to God. In Romans 12 too, we are actually transformed by the renewing of our minds. What does that mean? The more we think God's thoughts after him, the more our lives are actually transformed. That's amazing. He says it in Philippians 4. Set your minds on things above. Think about things that are noble, pure, excellent, everlasting, and eternal. And the peace of God will be with you. It says in Colossians 3, do you not know? The Lord Jesus, he himself, is the sum of all knowledge. Let your noggin run on that for a season. Your thinking matters to God. The Psalms instruct us about God and about mankind and about life. It, it informs our theological thinking. And that's important for us to realize because our worship, what we sing together, informs our theology. Our theology then informs our worship, which informs our theology, which informs our worship. So our thinking matters. It has spiritual mass. The stuff that rattles around between our ears, God actually cares about intensely. The Psalms are wonderful. They're actually broken into five sub-books. There's 150 psalms, but there's five sub-books or sections. They begin in uh, chapter 1, then 42, 73, 90, and 107. And they're supposed to sort of uh, reflect and be similar to the divisions of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, the Torah, so that you will reflect on them, you will meditate on them, you will chew on them again and again. Not just the prophets or the law, but on these psalms as well, because they instruct us about God and man and life with God. They give us a lot to consider about God and the world around us. Not only did he stimulate intellectual thinking, the psalms also lead us to be provoked emotionally. They're all about feelings. Psalms are songs or, or poems. They are artful. There's music and rhythm, and they evoke an emotional response. One writer put it this way. The reason human beings express truth with music and poetry is to awaken and express emotions that fit the truth. Luther said music is the conduit to heaven. Things that are true that make us feel and emote are a conduit of connectivity. There's a wide array of emotions represented so that life is seen relatable to the one who reads and meditates on the Psalms. All these different feelings and experiences and emotions. Let me just give you a, a quick snapshot of some of the emotions you're going to encounter in the Psalms. There's anger. There's awe. There's brokenheartedness. Confidence. There's contrition. There's delight. There's desire. There's discouragement. There's fear. Gladness. Gratitude, grief, hope, joy, loneliness, love, pain, peace, praise, regret, shame, sorrow, and zeal. And that's just a few of them. They're just full of the human condition. And so more than any other book, the Psalms uses our emotions to amplify the truths, instruction concerning God and man and life. But then Psalms lead us to life with God. Incidentally, I would argue that there is really no point in thinking or feeling without God. 
It's all futility. If all of your thoughts and all your feelings are utterly godless, as we've already read in Psalm 1, that is futility and worthlessness. The Psalms, watch this, are inspired by God. And so they are God's word for how we are to live and know and experience him. God has not stayed hidden. He said, this is how I want you to relate to me, to experience me, to think about and feel with me. The important part is God is not distant or disinterested or disappointed or dissatisfied. He's telling us in 150 chapters, I want you to do life with me. It's good for you. In fact, it is best for you. Psalms matters. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament. We know they're inspired by God because Jesus taught so, he thought so, and he said so regularly when he was teaching. So when we read and sing and meditate on the Psalms, our minds and our hearts, our thinking and feeling are being shaped and they're being changed by God. That's how it happens, and that's what we're in it for, that God slowly but surely transforms us into the kinds of people that think his thoughts after him. What does this world need more than anything? People who are thinking God's thoughts after him. How does that happen? Spend time in the Psalms. When you begin to think and feel like God does, you begin to know what God knows, you begin to care about what God cares about, you begin to love what God loves, and we are changed. God is glorified and the world is blessed. More than us reading the Psalms, as it turns out, the Psalms read us. There are various psalmists that write these Psalms. There's, of course, King David. Uh, Moses writes some of the Psalms some 500 years before David. There's a guy named Asaph. There's Korah. There's Ethan. There's a bunch of different ones. And they all seem to realize that we are complex beings that are driven by head and by heart. And those two influences are always jockeying for position. The psalmists all seem to understand a fundamental truth that I think many of us miss. We were created for delight. Did you know that? That's a biblical truth. You and I were actually created for delight, for happiness. Now, astonishingly, God gives us the capacity to choose the things in which we delight. And that's amazing. God's not like me, because I'm insecure, super insecure, if any of you know me very well. I would never give the ones I created the chance to choose something other than me, to delight in. But God's not like that. He is sovereign, and He is good, and He really is loving and faithful. So, He gives us His Word and His Spirit and His people to remind us of what's going to be our big idea for today. And it's utterly earth-shattering. Not really, not even close, but it is true. Our big idea for the morning goes like this. Delight is derived from doctrine. I know, when you say doctrine, <gasps> you can't help it. I mean something very specific when I say doctrine. If what the world needs more than anything else is people thinking God's thoughts after him, the only way they can do that is the word of God rightly divided. And that's what I mean by doctrine. I don't just mean a whole bunch of uh, catechisms and uh, systematic theologies. I mean the Word of God, rightly divided, meaning properly interpreted and applied so that we know what God knows, so that we want what God wants, so that we love what God loves. Our delight is derived from doctrine, that is, the Word of God, rightly divided. So, back to Psalm 1. We don't even know who wrote Psalm 1. 
Maybe David, maybe not. I kind of tend to think not. The Psalms can sometimes be vexing and confusing because they're not actually placed in our Bible in chronological order. Uh, Psalm 51 was written before Psalm 32, and yet Psalm 32 comes first. That's weird. It's just the way the Hebrew uh, scholars uh, amalgamated and put those things together for the hymn book, you might say. So we don't know who wrote Psalm 1, but we do know that it is a wonderfully rich, beautiful, rhythmic poem. It is an Eastern poem. It's a Semitic poem. It's a, it's a Jewish form of art. Now the problem is, <laughs> I'm none of those things. I'm a Western guy. We're, we're in America in the 21st century. And so trying to really unpack a 3,000-year-old Hebrew psalm is kind of like trying to do so with calculus. You, you, you kind of miss some of the punch, but I'm not going to get in costume and say it in Hebrew because you wouldn't like that either. So we're going to do the best we can in our time and space to make sense of this wonderful 3,000-year-old Hebrew psalm. So Psalm 1, verse 1, again, that's fascinating to me. The very first word of the entire Psalter, meaning all 150 Psalms, the very first word is blessed, Esher in Hebrew. This is the start of blessedness, of delight, of happiness. Blessed is the man, Ish, it's, it's just the person. So this is not boxing out females. Blessed is the person who walks not in the council. So what we're going to get is a person described negatively, meaning these are the things that this person does not do. And the Hebrew is very emphatic. It would go something like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the council of wicked. No, he doesn't. There's a little bit of a mm, emphasis at the end. Nor stands in the way of sinners. No, he doesn't. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. No, he wouldn't. That is blessedness. What's actually going on there? Our culture, as you may or may not be aware, and civilization are really not very different from any other. A lot of externals and a lot of wrappings, but really we're all the same. People are on a quest to find happiness, to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. And we tend to think, because we are in the middle of all these technological advances, incredible technological advances, that we're happier, that we're better off. But I wonder, in this day and age, are we really generally happier than previous generations. With all of our enlightened learning and modern thinking, are we happier than people 200 years ago? Are we happier than people 2,000 years ago? Hmm. It's really interesting. There's a modern phenomenon that's really only been applied in the last 200 years or so. In our culture and context in the West, we now have a tendency to scorn the ancient. We assume that anything old or ancient is dim or dumb. That always happens in every society ever in human history. There becomes an increasing obsession towards youth and a disdain of that which is old. Happens in every society until the society becomes a flaming crater of wreckage. <laughs> Yay. But we'll be better and different. Yeah, probably not. We assume that those who are ancient were dim or dumb. Every other civilization before the last 200 years believed that wisdom was accrued over time, so they greatly valued their ancient traditions and their ways. They looked to the past to understand where happiness was found. Tell me, grandmother, what did you and grandfather do? Tell me, great-grandfather, how were you guys happy? That's no longer the case, unfortunately. The entire Psalter opens up 
with this very direct introduction to understand where happiness is found. There's really only two paths to follow in Scripture, period. There's wisdom and there's foolishness. That's maybe not what we expect. Interestingly, the contrast in Psalm 1 is not between righteousness and wickedness, which is what we'd sort of expect. It's not that. It's about the influence of righteousness and wickedness. The influenced by wicked, well, they are foolish. The influenced by righteous, well, they are wise. Those things go hand in hand. Don't give attention to the wicked sinner or, mark or the mocker. Find delight elsewhere. And so the psalmist is going to make this point very, very powerfully. It's a very intentional progression here. We've got walking, we've got standing, we've got sitting. Now, there are some commentators that will say, oh, this has to do with the three different seasons of life. When you're young, you're moving around quite a bit, you're walking around, you're rubbing shoulders here, you're having conversations over there, you're moving about, you're moving about, but you're walking with these kind of bad influences. And then as you get older, you're just standing because your back hurts, and who's going to, you know, hey, you just, you're just, that's enough of that already. Uh, and then over time, you finally just sit down, and you have some Metamucil, you watch Matlock, you turn in at seven. Maybe that's what's going on in the text. Probably not. It's Hebrew parallelism. It's Hebrew poetry to just talk about the different sort of influences that impact and have, um, well, influence on our lives. You make a statement is what the psalmist is doing, and then you say it in a different way, and then you contrast it, and then finally you make a summary statement to explain it. Verse 1 is setting us up to learn something hugely important, something ancient, that there is a progression to our lives. Watch this. If you start out by walking, that is going about all your ways of life in the mindset and attitude of the wicked, it will have an impact on you. Now, let me point something out. Wicked in Hebrew is rasha. Wicked is not pure, unadulterated, unabashed evil. It's not horns and pitchfork and cloven hoof and a cape and blah. It, that's not it. No. Wicked is rasha. It simply means one who is not in covenant relationship with God. That's it. That's the definition of wicked. One who is not in covenant relationship with God, ergo and therefore, they are incapable of thinking God's thoughts after him because they don't know him. They don't know what he's like. They assume a great deal all in error. That's wicked. And so the psalmist is saying, if you walk in those ways, over time, it is going to have an effect on you. It's going to waterboard you into a different mindset, attitude of thinking. And your thinking matters to God. This is a person whose destination, well, is destruction. It's an individual who does give off influence and is offended if you don't agree with their influence. We have to be watchful. It can be very appealing. Our enemy, our flesh, and the world system are very subtle and very crafty. So just know that heeding that level of influence for a prolonged period of time, it does have a consequence. If you do that for long enough, you will begin to take your stand in the same way or the same manner of life that sinners do. It will normatize. It will become normative for you. Because you've been waterboarded, waterboarded, and so you just get eroded in your insensitivities. And you just become one who stands in it. You're just now right in the middle. And if you do that for long enough... You find yourself completely residing and abiding in the mindset and attitude of cynical, sarcastic, bitter, resentful, spiteful people. In the Semitic or the Hebrew culture, where you sit is where you belong. 
That's what that means. It's where you now belong. You are where you belong. You might remember the story of Lot as he departs from his uncle Abraham. He wanders around the wilderness and finds himself walking around in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he stands there. It's not long before he is sitting in the gate, in the judgment seat. He was walking, influenced. He stood there, and then he sat right down in it. That is what can happen to us. And I will dare say, knowing some of you who have been open and shared some of your family struggles, this is perhaps what has happened to some of your adult children, your neighbors, your siblings, your parents, your coworkers, your community members. You've watched as a slow erosion began to occur where they were walking in the way and then it began to deepen and sort of calcify and got more uh, hardened. And then finally they sat right down in it and it became their normative experience and expression. We've heard the stories over the last 10 to 15 years of these quote-unquote celebrity Christians who have deconstructed. What does that even mean? It means they were walking and then they stood and then they sat. And it is a very real danger. And when that happens, it is increasingly difficult to think God's thoughts after him because you don't know him. But remember, our sin is no match for God's grace, and that is very good news. Spurgeon talks about this person who has progressed from, from walking to standing to sitting. Now, Spurgeon said this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's dead now, so get mad at him. All you like, I didn't say it. I agree with it. I didn't say it. I'm just going to say it now. At this point, he says, a man like that has received his master's in worthlessness and his doctorate in damnation. So this is serious business. What is going on in the world? What is wrong with the world? People's inability to think God's thoughts after him because they don't have the word of God rightly divided as their source of truth. The only inerrant, infallible, inspired source of truth. Now, that's verse one. We'll pick up speed. Verse two, because of standard Hebrew parallelism and poetry, here's what you should expect to read in verse 2. Because of the way the verse 1 read, blessed is the one who does not do that, does not do that, and does not do that, here's how verse 2 should almost always, always read. It should say something like this, blessed rather is the man who walks in the counsel of the righteous, and who stands in the way of the just, and who sits in the seat of the praising. There'd be a nice parallel and a nice contrast. That's what it kind of should say. It's what you expect. But the psalmist goes full record scratch and wants to get our attention. He breaks the normal pa the parallel to make a significant and intentionally attention-getting point. Here's what he says in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's not a parallelism. In verse 1, blessed is the one who is not trying to find his delight from the, what the sinners and the wicked and the mockers do. But his delight is in one place and one place only, in the law of the Lord. That doesn't mean all the stipulations of how to stir your soup counterclockwise after three. No, no, no. It has to do with what God is like, his character, his actions, his words, the word of God rightly divided. It's his delight. He loves to think about what God is like, about his characteristics, about his value. There's one sufficient positive criteria. Blessed is the one who does not do this, that, and the other. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His influence comes from God's word, not from all the millions of competing voices in the world around us. So let me say this again. 
because I say it, I feel like every other week here at Bethel downtown, our thinking really does matter to God because our thinking and our mindset and our attitude really reveals who we are. It's been said this way. You're not who you think you are, but what you think, you are. You're not who you think you are, but what you think, you are. Now, most of us in the 21st century are pretty good at self-regulating in a public kind of way. We say nice things, we do decent things, but in our heads, there is darkness and depravity and lust and anger and assault and arrogance and apathy. Oh, I'm having a wonderful day. How are you? God is aware of our thoughts. The stuff that occurs between our ears and our shoulder blades has spiritual mass. God is aware of who we actually are, not what we portend and pretend to be. You're not who you are, but what you think you are. You are what you think. Now, that's not just me saying that. That is Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks, there he is. The psalmist's contrast is where we get the fuel for our frontal lobes, our thinking, ought to be on and about God's Word. He tells us to meditate on it, to meditate on it. Listen, I, I don't know where all of you grew up. I grew up in the Texas panhandle where we had about 100 cows for every human. And the IQ was the same across. It was kind of amazing. And what we would see is all of these cows, and of course, if you've ever driven by on a warm fall day when the weather was really humid, you go past a feedlot, and it just smells like money or death. But you'd watch these cows just with these big old flappy jaws just eating like a seventh grade lock-in. What are they doing? You know what they're doing? They're meditating. It's the same idea. See, a cow has four stomachs. You jealous? I'm jealous. A cow has four stomachs. They eat something. It goes in, but they ain't done. It comes right back up, and they chew it up again. Round two, and then, they go, and then right back out again. And they just keep, it's called chewing the cud, and it's disgusting. Good luck with your seafood. It's called chewing the cud. It's, you take it in, you bring it back out, you chew on it with that same flappy jaw. That's meditation on God's scripture. You don't just take it in and it's out of you. You bring it in and you gnaw, you chew, you nosh on it. What is God saying? What is this truth? What is this concept? What is this principle? What does this mean? How does it affect me? How does it affect my marriage? How does it affect my parenting? How does it affect how I do my taxes? And you just chew on God's word. You meditate on it day and night. Or you can try to be Insta-famous and look at the Twitters and the TikToks and have your soul and mind and brain be utterly waterboarded with other false declarations of what will bring you delight. Your brain, my brain, will wire around what makes it fire. If you don't know that about yourself, adults, learn it. If you don't know that about your kids, adults, learn it. Our brains will always wire around what makes them fire. The psalmist, ancient truth for current living Wire your brain around the Word of God so that you can think thoughts after Him. You will not be happy. You will not find delight until you do. Psalm 1 is the introduction to the whole worship guide. So what? Well, first point goes like this. Delighting in God's Word is where worship begins. 
That's why we started off the way we did, worshiping together, built on and surrounded by God's word. Well, he moves from those contrasts in verse 1 and verse 2, now to verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. The first two verses included a contrast. Now we're going to get this metaphor. And the language is very, very graphic for these first readers of the Psalms. They would have gotten it immediately. See, Israel is a very dry and arid terrain, outside of the rainy season, of course. But this is describing streams, plural, that are always nurturing the tree. It's always bearing fruit. It's always prosperous. No, this is not a prosperity message or a prosperity gospel text, as in, if you just do right, you'll be financially successful. Of course not. The psalmist knows way too well that is not the case. There will be seasons of suffering and strife, no doubt about it. It's metaphorical language. Whatever happens to the tree, it bears fruit precisely as and when it was intended. The fruit is born. In season, the psalm says, it takes time. It's not instantaneous. You might not even be tell that it's happening just by looking. Now, here's what's amazing. The psalmist writes this some 3,000 years ago. About 500 years after that, one of the prophets has to come and rebuke Israel because they didn't get it then, which is a tragedy because 500 years before the psalm was written, God had already said it. God tells Moses, when you go into the land, here's the job for every king that you're going to get. The very first thing the king is supposed to do is appoint a cabinet of ministers. No. Install a heated toilet seat. No. The first thing that the king is going to do when he gets into office is take out the Torah and write out his own copy in his own hand. He doesn't get to have a scribe do it for him. He doesn't get to pull out the old, even back then, 2,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago, even then a Xerox machine was old. Nope, you've got to write it in your own hand. It needs to come into you and through you and out of you. That's the first thing the king is supposed to do. How do they do? Not a one of them ever did it. Not a one. And so God tells Joshua, when you go into the land, do not let this law depart from your mind or from your mouth. I want you thinking about it. I want you talking about it. How does Joshua do? Awesome. He finished well. How does everyone else after him do? Not so good. And so the nation of Israel, the covenant community, the messianic people fall into cyclical decline so that 500 years after Psalm 1 is written, Israel pursued happiness and delight in every other source other than Yahweh. And they're dead. They're dead. God allows the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon to come in and perpetrate death sentence on them. They're butchered. They are taken out of the land. That is separation. They are not thriving. They are out. And what does the prophet Jeremiah come to them and say? Psalm 1 all over again, but only 500 years later. He says this in Jeremiah 17. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Ah, but blessed is the man, Esher. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. 
Had Israel only listened, all of this history would have been very, very different. But they chose to not listen to the song of the psalm and to try to find delight elsewhere. They were influenced by the ways of wickedness. And by the way, we are all as well. More on that in a moment. Well, verse 4, we pick up speed. Now we have the contrast. Verse 4, the wicked are not like that. They are like chaff that in the wind that the wind drives away. They are rootless, lifeless, fruitless, worthless, blown here and there, an irritating waste. This verse always gets me. It's the default condition of humanity since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's not very encouraging news at all, but it does explain a whole lot if you look around. Verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It's a solemn judgment pronouncement. Despite how it might look or feel now, there is an eventuality coming. I know sometimes the wicked, those who are not in covenant relationship with God, it seems as though they're winning. It seems as though they've got it all figured out. It seems as though life is awesome. Not in God's perspective. Not in God's purvey. And not in his perception. Verse 6, the summation. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's the summation and the contrast. The contrast is between the way. Yahweh knows, he yada, the way of righteousness. With it, he has intimate familiarity. He owns it. The alternative way, the one unknown by God, is ultimately extinct and leads to extinction. This is why Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, away from me, I do not know you. That broad road you've been traveling, that is pursuing every other source of delight and none of it has a destination that you want to arrive. None of it. So as we've said, delight is derived from doctrine. The word of God rightly divided so that we can think God's thoughts after him. Our culture the world around us are quickly becoming this sort of global, common reality. There is, if you haven't discerned yet or figured out, there's a skepticism of anything that, pre that precedes the 21st century and a resentment of anything older than 15 years. But our God has given us his living and active word. It is for his glory and our good. It's in a sense, it's the owner's manual. God says, here's how you can flourish and thrive, and here's how you can have delight, how you can be blessed, how you can be happy. I know doctrine might seem boring, but it's actually the spring of delight. So let me give you some, some points here. Number one goes like this. Happiness is possible. Did you know that? Not only that is what God wants for you. Delight, joy. Happiness is possible. We come into this world thinking that happiness is natural and that we should expect it, that it's our entitled right. It's the way things are supposed to be. But we learn very quickly and very repeatedly that life is actually, most often, pain. Ah, but this ancient text is telling us that happiness is possible and the key is not some secret that you have to dig up at the bottom of the sea. If it's possible, then why are so few people actually happy? Because they're all looking in the wrong places. Happiness, blessing is derived from walking the way of wisdom. The big fancy fun church word is epistemology. How do we know what we know? Where is the foundation for what we actually know and think and believe? For the man or woman of God, it is God's word. 
for the wicked, the rasha, the one outside of covenant relationship with God, it's in anything else. It's in social media. It's in science. It's word of mouth. It's hearsay. It's how I feel. And all of those influences lead to destruction. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot, we must not trust in them. But happiness is possible. Second point. Happiness is internal, not external. In other words, happiness does not come from circumstances or environments. It doesn't even come from what you can accomplish or achieve. Happiness comes from a root system that is planted in nourishing flows. Seasons will come and the tree will experience drought. That doesn't mean that it's unhealthy or that God is disappointed. Happiness and delight are a deep abiding reality that come from really knowing God through His Word and loving Him because of it. And ultimately then, ourselves. Realizing, wait a second, this, despite all my frustrations with it, is the pinnacle and the apex and the climax of God's greatest creativity. And He's crazy about it. And He wants to be with this for all eternity. Now that's very good news. That makes me happy. He's not disapproving. He's not disappointed. He's not disinterested. He's not distant. He's crazy about me. Happiness and delight are a deep abiding reality that come from really knowing Him, loving Him because of His Word, and ultimately ourselves. It comes from being rooted in something other than yourself. By the way, in seasons of dryness, do you know what trees have to do? They have to send their roots down even deeper. And sometimes God will lead his trees into seasons of severe dryness so that their roots go deep into his word. Together, trees don't plant themselves. They are planted by someone else. Praise God. Next point. Happiness is found when it is not sought. I know that might sound a little bit like Eastern mysticism or some Zen judo toss of the mind. No, no, no. It's deep biblical wisdom, and it is in the Bible, cover to cover, table of contents to the maps. Happiness is found when it is not sought. Every passage that describes the blessedness talks about blessed are the ones that are hungry, thirsty, tired, mourning, etc. But they all seek the Lord. So long as happiness is one's highest priority, it will never be experienced. Check this out. If you seek righteousness more than happiness, you get both. If you seek happiness more than righteousness, you get neither. See also 8 billion people in the world. If you seek righteousness over happiness, you get both. If you seek happiness over righteousness, you get neither. The happiest people are the ones that have finally realized that it's not their project. This, by the way, is why we sin when we sin. We make happiness a priority, and we'll go to any length, take any shortcut to try to get it. That is the way of foolishness. Fourth point. Happiness is a choice. Remember, we started off by saying that this passage was all about influence and the way of our walking around lives. The text starts with a negative. Blessed is the one who does not do this, who does not do this, who does not do that. What's that about? It's about the psalmist trying to break allegiances with negative worldly influences, recognizing them for what they are and choosing to untether. My God, my God, 
where I am hooked in soul on social media. My God, my God, where I am hooked in soul on broadcast news networks. My God, my God, where I am hooked of heart for my neighbor's assets. My God, my God, where I am hooked through the eyes by what I see I desperately think I deserve. Cut those tethers. That's what the psalmist is doing. Helping us to break allegiances with influences that are of wickedness. This is conversion, y'all. This is conversion. Being freed, cut free from all of those things. Recognizing that something other than God has me. And then recognizing that he is the one worthy and only he is to have me. What is the water by which the tree is planted? Of course, it is God's word. Not just some collection of spells and incantations that we Bible whip our enemies with. No, no, no. The word of God rightly divided. God's thoughts. What does God actually think about this? You might need to go to a different passage than you assume. Spend some time and then chew it and chew it and chew it some more. The only hope against the pleasures of the world are the pleasures of the word. Whatever pleasure we focus on will be awakened. And listen, I say this to myself all the time. I wrote this down 20 years ago. have it tattooed on my soul because it's true. From a guy named Larry Crabb that has done a great much therapy with me. He says, counterfeit fulfillment feels pretty good, but it always disappoints. Anyone else want to raise a hand? No, don't. Just keep your hands down. Counterfeit fulfillment feels pretty good, but it always disappoints. Delight is derived from doctrine. The word of God rightly divided so that we think God's thoughts after him. Yeah, but really. Are there really only two ways of life? Isn't there something in between? No. No. No, there's not. We all realize that we're not exactly completely righteous, but we're also not completely characterized by evil. I mean, there's some semblance of morality. What about the real world? I mean, yeah, come on, man. What about how are we supposed to be happy when we're not really righteous in this reality? Well, Jesus is the answer. As it turns out, he really is the answer of what the world needs, and he has done it, and he is available. All of the things that we are waterboarded to believe that will make us happy never will. But in our flesh and the world system in which we live and the enemy that assaults us, We'll never break free of that unless we actually turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full on his wonderful face. About 250 years ago, there was an old preacher named Thomas Chalmers, and he said what every believer must have is the expulsive force of a greater affection. The only way you get rid of pursuing all those counterfeit happinesses is by choosing the ultimate source, wanting that more, and so that's Jesus. Because left to my own devices, my own depravity, I am that guy. I'm the kind of guy that walks in the counsel of the wicked, that stands in the way of sinners, that sits in the seat of scoffers, but not Jesus. He's the walking around righteousness of God. He is the living word. He is the walking around law of God. He is good. He's the fulfiller of the law. He met its demands. Perfection. He's worth meditating on day and night. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. See, the gospel is the good news. That God has given me credit for Jesus' life and given Jesus credit for mine. Remember what we said about chaff? Rootless, fruitless, worthless, blown away. And that is precisely how Jesus was treated. Yet there's Jesus, the most luscious, 
ripe fruit tree. And that's what God does with chaff. He turns chaff into cherry trees. Now that's the gospel, don't you see? So I come to God, just wrecked at what I bring, my default propensity to be chaff, and I ask him to be my master and my king. And because of the work of Jesus, I also get a father. And in that delight, I'm happy. So the question is for you, are you are you happy? Are you happier now than you were this time last year? Are you happier now than you were this time 10 years ago? Will you be happier this time in one year? Delight in the Word of God. Final point, and we'll close with this. You will inherit what you worship. Worship wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for this ancient text brought to a contemporary challenge. And I pray, Father, for any in this room that are still struggling through trying to convince you they, on their own, deserve you. And yet they've been pursuing delight and happiness in every other aspect of life. Would you reveal all of those tethers and break them free? Cut those bonds. Would you raise them to walk in newness of life? Would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus that they could for the first time begin to think your thoughts after you and experience fulfillment and joy? And would you give them courage and enthusiasm to talk with someone they know and love and trust about this? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see when they approach? And for the rest of us, Father, who have succumbed to the gravity of our depravity and we've been waterboarded with all these other influences of wickedness. Wake us to coherence with the truth of Jesus, Father. And may we be sustained by no other source of delight. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.